Agents Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Chime. Chime offers an award-winning sales acceleration platform built for the real estate industry. Powered by artificial intelligence, Chime delivers the data insights agents and teams need to make the most out of the leads they already have and to get to a close faster. Through an expanding partner network, Chime's easy-to-use conversion platform also delivers quality sales-ready leads from the get-go. It eliminates time-consuming manual tasks and helps agents focus on what matters most, building their network, servicing clients, and growing the bottom line. To learn more about how Chime can help you, visit www.chime.me or call 833-682-4463. I think the psychological piece to a transaction in real estate is probably very underrated. And it's something that most real estate agents should probably take a lot more serious when they are working with buyers and sellers because it's very emotional. And today we're going to we're going to talk about that. We're also going to uh, talk about New York City real estate because uh, our guest today comes from New York City. We don't often talk to Northeasterners, uh, so this is going to be fun. He's going to talk about the difference between investing in a city like New York versus anywhere else. And I know you West Coasters are probably thinking right now. Oh yeah. You think New York city is better than LA? Well, I think our guest today is going to uh, talk to us about that. And, and uh, you know, also how brokers can help investors with, with uh, sizing up apartments and working in high rise buildings, all of these topics today that are not common on our podcast. So I'm excited for it. Uh, We've got Scott Harris on the show. He's also got a podcast called finding home. He's done uh, over a billion dollars in volume in his career is 20, which spans 20 years. Welcome to the show, Scott. Jeff, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me here. And, you know, I wasn't always a Northeast guy. I was, uh, I, I bring a, maybe a little bit of an outsider perspective. I was raised in the deep South in New Orleans, and maybe I bring the, the right pace to get things done in New York. I don't know. <laughs> well, as a Midwestern guy, and we have uh, we have offices all over the country. I'm actually in the mortgage space. And so we, we span literally uh, every coast. And, and so I get to work with people of all, all different uh, backgrounds. And it's interesting to see the different dynamic and humans. And I'm Midwestern. So Midwestern tends to be more down home and just kind. And, you know, you coming from New Orleans, you probably can appreciate and understand that. Uh, but we always Northeasterners, as you probably know, because you live and breathe it, uh, it tends to be a little bit more brash, uh, for better or for worse, you know. And so, so tell us about your background before we get into some of those topics that I mentioned in the beginning. Tell us about your background. So, you come from New Orleans. Uh, what kind of led you to where you know where you are today? Yeah, well, I born and raised in New Orleans, and like a second generation New Orleanian, I guess. My grandfather grew up in New York City, and. During the depression, they got down there and I sort of fought my way back to the Northeast a little bit. I I played high school football, which is a fun thing to always talk about with folks um, with the, with the Manning boys. So I'm, I'm of the generation of the oldest brother who you might see on some of the betting commercials. And he's got a really wonderful um, personality that's translated to a lot of, you know, what he's talking about ESPN and whatever and Peyton was our quarterback when he and I were seniors. So Peyton was a sophomore. And he talks about it as his really most fun football season ever. But that really informed the way I think about teamwork 
and what you can do. And for me, it was like, maybe I was a slightly talented guy, but probably more just a hardworking guy. But having fun and doing that really carried me into college, went to school at Penn in Philadelphia, never left the Northeast. Um, I spent and to de- to court a detour from mute from football and stuff. I actually um, am a singer and a performer. I spent the first six years out of college touring with a, a vocal group as a singer and writing music and touring the U S. And then when that, uh, there was a natural stopping point there, I moved to New York in 2002 and for the last 20 years I've been doing real estate and, you know, the music business and all of the, it, all of the other things sort of informed the way that I think about getting deals done in New York. And most importantly, how I think about the people behind the deals. What kind of, what kind of music? So I want you to imagine a boy band at the, in the late nineties. Okay. You know, everything about it, except there was no backing track. So we had a beatbox. This was like pitch perfect before pitch perfect was a thing, you know, like uh, pentatonics or something like that. If you know that group and we wrote our own music, it was very pop R and B. We opened for bands of the time, you know, your Justin Timberlakes and NSYNC and 98 Degrees. And it was a ridiculous, fun way to meet people all over the U.S., you know, got all the way to the West Coast and back a bunch of times. And um, crazily enough, we we had a record that came out on 9-11, like it actually the day of 9-11. And that was such a it was a tragic day, but it also for us killed all the momentum of the band. And so I had to take a moment of soul searching and go, do I want to keep at this for another couple of years and build it back up? Because music just stopped being played on the radio. It was a crazy thing, especially we were in Boston. You know, you can imagine like the planes flew out of Boston. It was an intense emotional thing. And uh, we were, you know, it was soul searching for everybody, of course. And, and in New York, it was tragic, but for me, it was like, okay, I have to reevaluate what I want to do. And it gave me the opportunity to say, all right, you know what? I love New York. I want to move to New York. I had a brother in New York. I was traveling and visiting New York all the time. And it was really calling my name. And, uh, and so I made the move, uh, at the end of 2002. End of 2002. So what led you, what was it that turned you on to real estate? Well, People know you much better than you know yourself, Jeff. Like a lot of the time, somebody else will look at you and say, you know, you'd be really good at this. Or, I mean, there's a reason why people have coaches because they can see what you're doing better than you can see it yourself. And for me, it was my stepmother who was a guidance counselor at my middle school. And I was kind of figuring out like, gosh, what am I going to do? I was doing music and the music business. Am I going to keep doing that? And she said, you know, Scott, I think you'd be a really good real estate agent. And I was like, what? And I'd always loved architecture. My dad's in commercial real estate in New Orleans. And I had no, I was like, huh, maybe, let's see. She was the one who, you know, who, who's always had an eye on trying to help me out. So I got my license and it was like a duck to water. It was every single thing I'd ever been good at. They all came together under one roof. And it was like a, a shot. I was really being shot out of a cannon. It was awesome. Business, really just everything I was doing made sense. And I, I just loved it. It was hard, but it, you made money. I never made more than like 40 grand a year before I got into real estate. I was just paying my rent and getting by running my own life. But, but at the time, I was, you know, there were secretaries who made a lot more money than I ever did on the road. And it was... Um, it was amazing. And being in New York with a few dollars in your pocket is a great thing. 
and it, it was just super fun. And after a couple of years, I'm like, huh, you know, I was doing rentals when I started because I didn't have a job. I mean, I had, I really had to kind of get it going, finally got into sales. And that's when the light bulb went on and I really realized I could help people. And that what was the biggest. That how many was. years in the business would you say that was? Well, I did my first sales deal a couple of years into the business. So it was this one, this really nice retired woman who was introduced to me. She was Italian and she just, had, her name was Elisabetta. She was so cool. And we kind of ran around the Upper East Side and I was able to help her like get situated and sorted out after a divorce that was kind of messy. And it was so satisfying. And I would say, you know, after that, I got, I got my first listing and it sort of built up. I would say by 2005, six, which was about three years, four years in, I started to get some traction. And then about five years in is when I think a lot of agents will tell you that's kind of when you get your, your feet under you for real and started to get a lot more listing side business. And I realized, you know, that, Hey, this is something that is really sustainable. It's fascinating. I also met my wife, which was a big deal. You know, like a, uh, I had like a real foundation that was starting at that time. So it was pretty exciting. You had to, you had to, you couldn't really take going on tour with the boy band very serious once you decided to settle down. Uh, well, you know, the, I, I, I feel like I left it all on the table with the music. I was like, I didn't, I didn't have any questions about what it would be. We had a lot of success. It was really fun. And I was ready to pour my creative energy into something else. I mean, I had a band here, right. And it was really fun. I love writing music and I bring that creative juice into life today. So I never let that go, but I certainly poured it in a different direction. That's pretty awesome. And I have to digress before we get onto the topics. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure our listeners are thinking to themselves that, uh, you know, anytime somebody talks sports with Jeff, Jeff always has to bring it up because I'm a sports guy. Let's and do it. Uh, you mentioned the Mannings. If, if, if you don't know who Peyton Manning is, you are clearly living under a rock. I don't care if you're not a football fan. I mean, he's become a great actor. He's really hilarious. He's great in commercials. You've seen him. You know who Peyton Manning is. He's got a younger brother, Eli Cooper, was the brother who didn't make it in the NFL uh, because he had a bad injury. He was not a quarterback. He was a he was a wide receiver. What position did you sell us what you played? I was a fullback and oh, I was okay. a linebacker. Well, so you were, you were a, a meaty guy, I guess. Yeah, huh? I'm a short, I'm a short guy. I'm about five, not even five, seven. My kids make fun of me. Cause I, once, once you get short enough, you start doing half inches, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> of course. Um, and, but I was really strong and I was quick and we were a small school. And so, you know, I was taking handoffs and blocking and, and uh, it was super fun, you know, to have a, a kid who was like a great quarterback. And we had a major, if you care about sports, it was like a three or four wide receiver set in high school. Most schools were running on third and eight. Yeah. They would run on the like, option. They're running the option. Right. Exactly. And like here we are running like a pro style offense. It was blowing people's minds and Peyton could throw the ball at 16 years old, like 60 yards down the field. So it was, it was awesome. And we were like keeping the defense honest. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I would get five yards on a up the middle play and there was a much faster running back who could take it around the side. But we were like a, a solid offense and we got pretty darn far. We got all the way to the semifinals of that's, the state champion, the state uh, playoffs. That's pretty awesome. Was, and, and if you don't know this, Cooper's got the son. His name is Arch. He's currently one of the top prospects in football going to the University of Texas. You will hear that name if you're even just a half-assed football fan. You'll be hearing Arch Manning, not Peyton or Eli's son. It's Cooper's son. Uh, so good for Cooper, you know? It's, he's always been living in the, in the shadows. Well, he's, he's a great guy. I mean, he's, he's the, one of the funniest people I ever knew growing up and just such a personable guy. He was going to be successful no matter what. And um, 
I really, I, you know, whenever I talk to him, it's like great to see him and he's a really thoughtful, caring guy. So, you know, I'm glad to see him. Those guys are raised right. I have to say, yeah. you know, they, they carry, they, they're great examples for a way to, to be parents and live a life and, and kind of be a community kind of in the public eye. So I give them a ton of credit for what they're able to do yeah. on and off the field. We could, we could probably talk about this for an entire episode, but I don't think our audience is here for that. So nope. let's, let's digress over to the real estate side. So, you know, it started back in, in Oh two. And, and I think I read by, you know, 2014, you were ranked uh, as a, in the top, you know, 250 list in the entire United States, you were very high up the list in New York City. That's not easy to do. I mean, we're talking about one of those cities where, you know, obviously there's h- how many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of real estate agents. You know, how did you navigate that? Because I think a lot of people listening, first of all, they don't probably think most of us, uh, unless we're living in a Chicago and LA and Miami and New York, right? It's, we can't necessarily relate. And so try to try to kind of explain the dynamic of a New York city real estate market, maybe versus just, uh, you know, an average city. And I'll use St. Louis as an example. Okay, sure. So the, the biggest difference between New York city and another market is is that it does require well first the the whole the whole way that the deal is put together is very different but it requires you're doing bigger deals but fewer of them usually mm-hmm. so every deal if you if if i do 60 70 deals a year and that's on an average of you know let's say 2 2 million a year 2.25 or something like that you know you get a sense of the scope of the number of deals versus the actual sales volume, that is quite different than another market where the average sale price is $300,000. So what it, what it allows us to do is, is make it very focused on the people and the relationships. It's not about the transaction, right? And so I don't have to crank out a zillion deals to have a really fabulous year and to allow myself to build out a really high, it's a real high touch business in New York in a way that I don't know other markets are. And I've engaged with incredible agents in Phoenix, in New Orleans, and the pace is a little different, but in what makes New York, what separates New York is that everybody, the people I'm talking to are all incredibly successful, hardworking. The average income is, is, at least a million dollars or 700,000, you know, you were talking about really high uh, people at the, in the 1% uh, in order to afford even the smallest apartments. So we're, we're, we're in a very narrow, like a very high kind of part of the, the weather system here. And, and it just enables me to focus on what I'm pretty good at, which is the strategic thinking and the relationship building. And frankly, just the resourcefulness. Like I, I'm a problem solver and that extends like to everything. So the way I built my business was really just being a curious guy. Like if I'm talking, it's like almost like my life is a podcast, right? I just asking questions of people. I want to learn about them. I want to understand what makes them tick. And then I have this ability to kind of make matches. Like I'll listen to you talking about something. I'll ask questions and like, you know, you should meet, I just have this intuition that you should meet this other person. And when I started to do that, I was doing that for my whole life. I was always making matches and connecting people. But when I got into real estate, it's something happened and it was like, oh, 
this actually is value adding to people's lives. And, and all of a sudden my business was growing. So it was always, it was just, I found this thing that made, that also made money. Like it, the deals happened because I was always helping people that, Oh, you, you know what, Scott, you're, you're doing real estate. You should meet this person who wants to buy or sell. And it was really, it, it really started from being curious about people. What makes them tick? How can I help them? And it was almost never about real estate. Like real estate was like two or three on the list. Mm -hmm. It was always like, who are you and wh what makes you tick and what makes you awesome? And why are you great? Like just learning about you. And then by extension, the real estate just grew. And I don't want to like discount it. I was super follow, um, follow up guy, super persistent, patient. You know, I, I'll see a deal through like if, if even if the deal's dead, it's not dead you know, that kind of thing, like mm -hmm. never give up kind of attitude that I always wanted to, you know, make sure that I did everything I could to make a deal work. But at the same time, it was less um, about the real estate and more about the people always. It's interesting because I think a lot of people would hear what you say and say, oh, that sounds amazing. I have to work five deals to get to your one. Why wouldn't I want to work smarter, not harder? But the reality is if it was that easy, you know, obviously everybody would be doing it. And the reality is a lot of, a lot of people do chase that dream. They are, they do fly out to LA. They do fly up to New York. They do fly to these big markets because they want to work quote unquote smarter. But the reality is there's more competition. It's harder to get that one deal. When you get that one deal, you need that one deal. When you have five and you lose one, you're not going to die. And so I just wanted to, to lay that out there for somebody who's thinking to themselves, I got to get the hell out of bumpkin USA right. and go move there. It's, I, I would argue it's probably harder, even though it sounds appealing. Uh, it's probably 10x harder to survive in a market like that. And so the one question I would have for you is, 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 you know, it's, it's twofold question one, you know, as you were making your way, you know, so really from that 2004 ish to 2014, where you really were at the pinnacle of success. Uh, and then, so let's start there. Like, what would you say defined your success? What was a niche? And don't, and don't tell me something cliche, like I cared about my customer or, or I had neurotic follow-up because that's all duplicatable. What was unique, would you say for you back then? And then I want to fast forward after you answer that to what now you think defines you today, because the world has evolved. A couple things that have always stuck out. One is in about 2010, I was on a team when I moved from the Corcoran group to Brown Harris Stevens, where I am today. And I had my second, my wife and I had our second child. I was like, I have to hire an assistant. And pretty soon after that, I left the team. You know, I, I left the team I was on to go on my own. So that was a huge empowering. That was a big power move on my part, right? I needed to make my name for myself at my firm in the marketplace. And at that time, around 2009, I launched my newsletter. Right. And so a lot of people send newsletters and it's like, it may not be something that everybody does, but I love to write. You know, I love writing. I write music. I like to, you know, I just, I write. So I was putting on my own content, thinking about the market and sharing it. And I've always been a marketer. So like, I love creating interesting content. My email subject lines are curious and fun and whatever, but I was consistent about that every month. I mean, if I had to drag myself like on, you know, to the computer keyboard to like get that out, 
I do it and my personality comes through and it's a little irreverent and it's fun. And I'm thinking about the market in a way that I have my own voice. So, and as I built my newsletter, I'm obsessive about adding people to the newsletter. It's 31,000 people now, wow. which is, so at the very least, the consistency of doing whatever it is that worked for me, which was the newsletter kind of grew and grew and grew. But so that was one piece. The other, I call it speed of implementation. If I have an idea, Jeff, like I want to reach out, I read an article again, it's like this putting connections in my head you know, to somebody. And I read something that, that works for someone. I'm going to send a text or an email that second. Hey, I saw this and thought of you. How are you? What's going on? Okay. And you will be so shocked at like people. I, I know it's, I don't want to get into cliche. Cause I know you're saying like, you can go read the million dollar real estate agent and it says do your 33 touches or whatever it is. Right. But for me, it was like the, the earnest, interested connection between something I did, you know, that I thought about somebody. And I, it is really, I, I used to be obsessive about going through my lists. I kept, you know, I'm really organized because I'm an ADD guy and like, I need to have super amounts of structure around me. So I get obsessive and I go through all these lists and I'd have a list of buyers and sellers and, you know, rank them and everything else. I'd go and look at the list and I'd say, who on this list? I'd scan it. Who do I want to talk to? And it like trusting that something was going to guide me to like the three or four people on that list. And then I would reach out to them right away. And I know it sounds crazy and like maybe hard to duplicate, but like, that's what I did a consistent basis. And it was just crazy. Oh, I was just thinking of you, Scott. And then like a, a piece of business would happen. Nine. So I know that's a long answer, but I really, I don't know if that's no, what you're looking for, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it was, it grew and grew and grew. And I just, you know, that and just staying in constant contact with people. Sure. In 2014. Well, there was two pieces of it that, that, that I think are important. Uh, one is, is, and I want to ask some follow-up questions to the newsletter. Sure. Uh, but before I do that, you know, that speed to implementation, although it sounds simplistic, most fail in that arena. And, and now as times have evolved, uh, you know, obviously, as you can see behind me, you don't know a lot about me, but Scott, but we, you know, we do coaching on social media and we're, we're, we're big implementers and, and forward thinkers and pioneers of using these platforms. And one of the reasons why I've been able to build a, an authority status in that arena was because I was an early adopter of this guy right there. Can't point that guy. TikTok, when everybody else was saying, eh, it's going to die. Right. And, and now we're preaching that to everyone saying, listen, stop sitting on the sidelines and waiting for others to do it. Take a chance. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? Happen. It fizzles, nothing happens with it, but you gain some, you gain some knowledge as a result. And I think speed implementation on anything, like you say, you're sitting listening to a podcast, you come, you hear an amazing idea. Buy the book. Run, run out it right Absolutely. now. Absolutely. You, you know Do why it. I'm a podcast host? Because I went to a mastermind and heard them. This was back in 2017. They said, you should be podcasting. I went home and implemented a podcast and ended up meeting Tristan Almada as a result. Now I have hosted their podcast for three years and those things don't happen if you don't implement. So I love that you said that because I can totally relate. There's a lot of power in that. I wanted our audience to, to really understand that. Can, now, I, can I just say one yeah, thing, Jeff? When I was in college, I, I took voice lessons from this amazing opera guy. Okay. I'm not an opera guy. I'm just like a pop singer or whatever. And he would tell me stories about these opera singers that you think, you know, that it's perfect. And, you know, when they when opera more than any other singing is like meant to be perfect. And the audience is so critical and all this stuff. But he was telling me every night the soprano would fart on stage. 
you know, and every night there'd be a mistake here and a flub there and like all of the imperfection that was going on behind the scenes. And what it really told me was gave me permission to just be imperfect. And so many people, my team, I hear it all the time. Well, I want it to be perfect. I want to have the newsletter. I want it to, you know, what if people don't think it's da 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 like all the neurosis that happens. And what I, for better or worse, it's like, I just do it. And it's not perfect. And there's a typo. And I, you know, sometimes like cringe a little like, oh, you know, it could have been better or whatever. But it's just about doing it on a consistent basis more than anything else. And can I mean caring behind this? Like you have to care. You have to do it in a a way that feels right to you. But just to do it is more important than perfect. Yeah, 100 percent. For sure. And and back to that, back to social real fast too. I mean, yeah. that, that's what we preach now. Authenticity wins. You know, it, it doesn't have to be this picture perfect lifestyle. And that's the, that's the new way of marketing. Uh, the, the the companies that are succeeding at the highest levels, their their CEOs are the ones putting themselves out there and giving you a backstage pass to their life. And that's imperfect and that's scary to a traditional mindset. But that's what's winning right now. And so. I love that you said that, but I want to go back to the newsletter uh, because I do believe that that is a powerful strategy. You did it at a very high level at a very early, early time when, when that wasn't as commonplace as it is today. Do you have any tips that you could give to somebody, you know, a, you know, a, how did you build that audience? Because most, most agents or real estate professionals think, okay, they build that, that email newsletter audience from their database of, sphere of influence, which is friends and family and past customers, customers that they're working with. But outside of that, you you know, I doubt you've worked with 31,000 buyers and sellers because of your, you know, sheer volume. How did you grow that list? What is it? What is a trick that, that, that helps you get to that level? Every single person I ever meet gets in there. I mean, if there's a way to find their information, you know, Adam, they're, they're, there, there are apps now there that you can use websites that you can pull lists of people that fit your, you know, I mean, you can get a little bit more outside of the people you've met, but everybody I ever met gets marketed to in a thoughtful way, you know, in a way that adds value. So over, you know, networking groups, philanthropies, you know, there are a lot of people who say, Oh, I don't want to market to them. That would be crass or, or, you know, something like that, or gauche, like, Oh, that person doesn't want to hear from me, but Believe, you know, if you're doing a philanthropy, something you care about, the people that are you doing it with would love to give you business if there's an opportunity, if you're really good at what you do, because you have enough money to give to this thing, yeah. right? So it's, it's, it's really a, being bold enough, which I don't think it's being super bold, but just to market to everybody you ever meet. And then over time, it grows, but you have to do it on a consistent basis. So you come home with your business cards or um, a lot of people that are younger just have text messages and things like that. There's an amazing, um, I'll give a little shout out to my buddy, Jesse Stein, the founder of Addressable. You know, they have a service. I think if you give them all of your contacts from like Instagram or, or your text, you know, all your cell phone numbers in your phone, they'll go and find all the email addresses for you. So it's like, here's your contact list and I'll help you get it more filled out and full. And, you know, keeping your CRM, you know, your customer relationship manager full and organized and and really up to date. Sometimes people move and you don't know it. So you want to have their addresses. So to me, it's like getting the complete picture of all the people and just doing it. But over time, you look up and you're like, okay, I also want to market to the brokerage community. 
So every time we meet a broker, we add them too. So, I mean, it's been very surprising how much value I've been able to add to the brokerage community. I mean, you talked about early about it being like competitors, like, oh, it's very competitive in New York, but everybody can do, there's so much business to do. There are you know, billions and billions of dollars of business to do in New York. I've never felt like they were competitors. I always felt like I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to win the business that I make. Now and then I lose a deal and I'm like, gosh, that was terrible. But for the most part, I get the business done. I want to get done. And I'm really proud of that. And that doesn't mean I have to be terrible to other brokers. In fact, mm -hmm. the more professional we are as a brokerage community in New York and wherever, the more professionalized, you know, the, the more successful everybody can be. It just yeah. raises the bar and kind of like a rising, what's it? A rising tide lifts all boats. So like the yeah. more professional we are, the better reputation the industry has, the more it attracts more, you know, better, better people, smarter people, and it's a better experience for everybody. What would you say to someone who says, how often should I be putting out a newsletter and how do I come up with the consistent perpetual content to put in that newsletter? Yeah, that's probably the challenge I think that a lot of people face. So for years, we were doing a once a month newsletter on real estate and it was like, okay, you know, you can, every quarter you've got reports to, to put out in your market. Then you're talking about what are the trends in the market? Maybe there's some little nuance of something that you're hearing. Like right now, for instance, I'm sure you're hearing this, like the operating expenses of a bill, you know, like the way that mortgage stuff gets underwritten starts to play into, um, oh, here in New York, for instance, union, there's like a, a prevailing wage that just hit New York. So even if you're in a building that has a doorman and a staff that isn't union, all of a sudden the cost of those went up. So it's like, okay, I heard a building has to raise their monthly more monthly cost 25% overnight. That's something people want to hear about. That's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. So just like having those conversations and just saying, oh, that's something I want to write about. It doesn't have to be long, 250 words, 500 words, or some people choose to have content pulled from a lot of firms have their own content, but that's like the real estate piece about three and a half years ago, I was having so much fun. I always tell people what I'm excited about, books, music, gadgets, whatever, that I decided I'm gonna launch a total, just a lifestyle newsletter. I mm -hmm. call it the wiser, words, ideas, sounds, eats, and random stuff. So that's like nice. an acronym. Nice. And I was very scared, but I said, you know, I'm gonna do it. I started just sending the same email newsletter to the same people, and I do one on the 15th and one at the end of the month. So I'm doing it twice a month, but I think at the very least in, in New York, I think you put yourself out there once a month. I think that's enough. In other markets, maybe you have to do it more. Maybe there's a, you know, other things you can do that are just because um, it's, it's more sensible and you're, you know, it's a smaller market and, and you just want to do it that way. But to me, it's, it's, it, that all adds up, you know, the aggregate. Some people tell me they love the newsletter on the lifestyle and some people don't care about the real estate at all. Yeah. You know, they know I do real estate, but they really appreciate that more than learning about what's going on with the real estate market, because unless they're going to buy or sell, they don't care. Yep. Other people follow real estate like uh, it's a religion. Yeah. So it, it really just depends. I would argue that probably the majority of that audience much prefers the wiser newsletter to the real estate one, just because it is just more interesting. If it's not, if real estate is not relevant in their life, that, that newsletter is probably not as relevant to them unless they're just a you know, they're just a junkie on, on, on that kind of stuff, which that, those people are few and far between other than us in the industry. Right. 
I love the restaurants. You want to hear about like, you want to hear about restaurants that are good and and everybody eats. Everybody everybody eats eats and like, oh, you know, some people like, oh, what's the podcast that Scott likes? You know, what's that episode? Like, oh, that sounds really cool. I'll check that out. I mean, people say, oh, the books that you're reading, Scott, are really cool. Like, I would never have heard about it if it wasn't for you. Thank you. Or that gadget. I mean, it's just, I'm, it's, and I get to do a video. I, a lot, video is incorporated into the newsletter. So once a month, I do a, a newsletter, a, a video about the market. And the other one, I usually tell a story about some crazy thing that happened to me and like the life lesson that I'm pulling from. It. Yeah. So I'm, I, you know, it's pretty, I mean, in some ways it's vulnerable, but it feels comfortable to me and it's, it's a way to share. And, um, and I hope it helps people. Well, I think the key is, is you chose topics in that acronym based on what you're doing in your life, what you're passionate about, what's easy for you to talk about. And that's the key. And so if you are forming that newsletter, you hear this again, when we coach on social all the time, which is just talk about create content around what you're already doing with your life. If you're a tomato gardener, share it. There's going to be people out there that can resonate with that and enjoy that content far more than you're talking about the award that you won or the banquet that you just went to, right? Uh, people are more interested in lifestyle type stuff. I love that you did that. I think that's that's very validating for a lot of our, our listeners because if somebody wants to create that newsletter, it doesn't have to be a newsletter about real estate all the time. That can be just one blurb within the newsletter, but the rest of the newsletter can be about the lifestyle stuff and it can be about the stuff that you're passionate about, which makes it easy for you to write about, which then allows you to create an authority status on that topic and create more raving fans. More people that like to follow you and like to open up that newsletter are naturally going to want to do business with you. And if you just throw real estate at them all the time, you're going to lose. You're going to have a lot of unsubscribes. And um, I love it, dude. This is great. So uh, one more question about the newsletter. Uh, Are you still to this day, are you still doing these newsletters? Every month, every month. I, I remember one that stands out. It was a bunch of years ago. It was April 15th. I used to send my real estate newsletter out on the 15th. It was 2013. And I was on the Amtrak because, you know, people don't always have cars in, in New York, Jeff, taking the Amtrak from New York to Boston to run a marathon. I was running the Boston Marathon. Nice. And I had you to qualify. finish. You qualified. I didn't qualify. I raised money. Okay. okay so okay. I'm not Got that it. fast. But I... I finished the newsletter on the train. It had Wi-Fi. kind of finished the blog post and I, was, and I sent it to my assistant. I said, all right, it's ready to go on the 15th. That was the day of the marathon. So I go and I run and part of the blog is like, I'm running the marathon. If you want to give money to American Cancer Society, go for it, blah, blah, blah. Goes out to everybody at whatever time, say 11 in the morning. I start the race around the same time. Well, if people don't remember, 2013 was the year it got bombed. Oh. So a 10,000 or whatever people knew I was running the marathon. And then my wife's phone started blowing up. Like, is Scott okay? Is Scott okay? I mean, I never, if I ever had a doubt that people cared about me professionally or personally, it was like, well, this newsletter went out and it was so, it was so affirming to hear that from people. I was like, oh, I'm actually doing something here. I'm helping people out. And it was a really good feeling. But yeah, every month without fail. Got to do it. I love it. I love it. And and so that's just something that you've stuck with. So how many years is it now that you've been doing the newsletter? Like 13. That's amazing. That's amazing. Keep going. I love it. That's great. Uh, what, and what is the total number now? Is it that 31,000? I think I, I, I didn't realize, but you know, we've added a lot of agents now as well, because people seem to really love 
um, learning, you know, get my perspective on the market too. So it's it, it, the real estate newsletter goes out to them as well. Yeah. Fantastic. That's fantastic. All right. So as we, as we wind down towards the end of the podcast, you know, I, I talked about in the very beginning, kind of the whole psychological journey, which, you know, we've di- we've diverted all over the place, which actually in my opinion makes for the best podcast anyway, because, you know, we're talking about relevant stuff, stuff that's interesting, but let's talk about this. Let's talk about this psychological journey. What is it that you mean when you say the psychological journey that a buyer must go through to find their dream home? Explain what that means. Okay. So think about it this way, Jeff. The, you know, let's say marriage rates are down 60% in the last 50 years. People delay uh, having kids or don't have kids at all. Participation in church and going to church has gone down. People are polarized all over the political spectrum. You know, you've got technology, everything's pushing people in opposite directions. The one universal thing that everybody goes through, very American, is to buy a home. That's a rite of passage that everybody can agree on, right? And it is, I believe, if done right, it is a psychological journey to figure out what's important to you and who you are. And a good agent along for the ride can really provide the guidance to get somebody into a home that isn't just their dream home. Like, what is a dream home? It's more, much more than brick and mortar. That's why I call my podcast Finding Home. I'm meeting people who are passionate about, they found something that they love in life. And I think a house, the, the four walls of this house that can support, can really support somebody in their life journey. So they work together. And I really, I mean, what I, to back up, when I was a kid, my parents got divorced and it was, I was, so I was at a broken home and for years and years and years, you know, that was something that I dealt with. And when I got into real estate and I started getting these people that I was helping to find a home that really worked for them, I realized, and also in finding my own home with my wife was that real estate as the, for me, it was, the, I was helping me fix my broken home, right? Like literally. And so I think that what we do as realtors, as real estate agents, as brokers, whatever you call it, wherever you are, it's to me, it's a sacred mission to help people go through that journey together. And it is a psychological one. I was a psych major and then I became a psych minor for reasons we can talk about another time. But you know, the, the people aspect of this and what people go through and all the baggage and issues that show up in the middle no real estate agent doing this well will, will not say that you're kind of a therapist first and an agent second, you know, and, you know, maybe you start, you got to motivate people to get out there, your coach, then you have all this expertise and you got to know when to at, say the thing at the right time to get people comfortable with the decision. And then, oh my God, all the crazy stuff that goes on both inside your head and in the deal is it is a hero's journey. You know, it's like a Disney movie at the end when, you know, you're not the same person you were when you started. And if you do it right, you know, you got a house that really works for you and who you are in your life. And then later on, maybe it's time to move on, but it is, it is 100% a psychological journey. What is, what is one piece of advice that you would give to a real estate agent in that regard uh, in, in order to, to kind of help, help those buyers navigate that, 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 that piece of this process. Well, we've been talking a lot about marketing and newsletters, right? You have to establish your expertise to get the phone to ring. Okay. But when you sit down with that buyer the first time, it's not about your expertise anymore. It's not about you anymore. It's about the person and, and inspiring that 
buyer and seller in front of you to take action. You have to be a coach. You know, I had a, an amazing high school football coach, you know, he coached the Mannings and helped people get to success. And when I was like a scrawny 14 year old kid, he put me in the game at the end of a half and I had a great play and he called me out in front of everybody. He was like, look at what Harris did. Like, that's what you guys have to do. Get fired up. Like you're playing flat and all that, that alone, that one little inspiration carried me, you know, to be a captain of the football team and all of that stuff. We have the potential to be an inspiring figure in the lives of the people we work with. So I would say, make sure you know which hat you got to wear at the right time. Because if you go in there trying to be an expert and look at me and how great I am, you're not going to connect with the people that you're talking to. So as it relates to connecting with them, you know, are, are you, are you essentially suggesting that, that a real estate agent, you know, feels like they have to go into a transaction with all of the data, with all of the stat sheets, when in reality, you should be digging deep on understanding what makes people tick and, and, and what, what drives them, what their passions are, what their why is. That stuff is arguably more important than the stats on the sheet. You just said exactly right. That's exactly what I'm saying. That if you get to know somebody really well and what they care about and what they say and what they don't say, and look at them when they're looking at property, you are going to be able to find the perfect home for them. It's just going to show up and you're going to know it. And all the rest is your experience and your wisdom and your insight that comes from years of doing it and making mistakes. But it's all about the people that is going to inform how you can find the best place for them that works for them. And Yes, you got to be an expert. You got to know how to put deals together, but that is secondary to the to the people mm -hmm. in front of you. Yeah, and, and probably understanding the consumer because some consumers are probably going to be much more data driven. Of course, uh, but I I would say probably seventy to eighty percent. You go sit down at that listing presentation, or, or you know, with just an introduction to a buyer, and start asking them questions about about their interests and their family and their kids, and you're probably going to make a much stronger connection, have a much longer conversation, and they're going to walk away from that having this feeling of I just feel more connected to them, and it isn't about real estate, and you probably end up winning more deals as a result of that. Yeah, you have to know which which people need data to make decisions mm -hmm. and i mean i'm sure a lot of times one person in the relationship and the other person are not the same personality type so yeah. you not only have to hit on the data but you also have to hit on the emotion so it's it, it requires pretty deft kind of navigation i like to think of myself not as the captain of a ship on the ocean but like a riverboat captain because I don't have to know the whole ocean. I have to know one mile of this river to get you from here to there. And I got to know all the rocks and all the, 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 the branches and the logs under the surface to avoid, to get you just to there, right? I don't have to do everything well. I just have to know how to get you there. And so it, it almost is, it's just saying being knowledgeable enough to do the thing I need to do. And the rest is me caring about the people and, and getting to know them. Yeah. I love it. I love it. So in closing, what, yes. uh, what, what, what would you like to leave our audience with? Well, if they want to follow me on TikTok, they can go to Scott Harris finding home where I really do my best to be inspiring and tell stories about how I'm helping people get to the other side. 
uh, and all of the emotional journey that people do take. It's, it's fun to be a teacher on TikTok. It's, I call it the uh, self-help TikTok. That's kind of where I like to live. So they can go there. If they want to learn more about the writing, they can go to harrisresidential.com and check out all the things I'm thinking about real estate. And uh, if they go on Medium and look for Scott Harris, look for The Wiser, they can find the things I'm writing about that aren't related to real estate too. But um, it's, a, it's super fun. I mean, I love, my clients are great. They're doing all the sorts of amazing things. And New York is a fun market, but I've really got a, a tremendous respect for the agents across the country who are slugging it out every day. And, and, and if they can make it about much more than real estate, you know, hats off to them because it's a, it's, a, it's a fun world we live in. I think we have a role to play in, in making America a little bit better, frankly. I love it. Well, you have a new follower on TikTok. I just went and followed you. So uh, you'll see my name pop up there. The last thing to the podcast is, is finding home. And yes. I guess, is that on all, all mediums on, on oh, iTunes? Yeah. And the everywhere? podcast. Yes. Finding home. You can go on Spotify and everywhere where you listen and, and subscribe there. I, I will tell you, I'm interviewing like, like most award decorated award-winning like vocal guy who does book uh, books on who like the odd, the vocalist for bo- books or a guy who wrote an incredible book on the electoral college or people who ran the food network or CEO. I'm interviewing the CEO of Brown hair Stevens today to talk about lots of things that aren't related to real estate, but it's awesome. all about amazing people doing really different, cool things from across the spectrum. So, and we try to tie it sometimes to real estate, because real estate's part of everybody's lives, you know? Absolutely. It absolutely is. Scott, this has been an awesome conversation. Love getting to know you. And I uh, hope we get to stay in touch and um, looking forward to continuing to watch your journey. And now that I'm following you on TikTok, I'm sure you're going to show up on my feed uh, every so often. There we go. I'm gonna, I got to wear a cool hat like what you have on today. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a part of my brand, man. <laughs> I love it. I need one of those. It looks like it's your, uh, I want that raccoon. I love it. Yep. That's our Drunk on Social Facebook group. It's another conversation for another day. Jeff, thanks for having me here. Absolutely, brother. This episode of the Lab Goat Agents podcast is brought to you by RedX, the complete real estate prospecting solution. RedX offers high-quality lead data on expireds, for sale by owners, vacant rental property owners, pre-foreclosures, and geo-leads, the number one data source for neighborhood prospecting. You can also filter, organize, and call your leads inside Vortex, the all-in-one lead management platform, free with any lead subscription. With RedX, you get more than just phone numbers. You get all the tools you need to connect with more homeowners who are actively looking to sell. RedX is offering our listeners $150 off. Just go to redx.bz forward slash LCA. That's R-E-D-X dot B-Z forward slash LCA to sign up for RedX today. Agents Podcasts.